Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson Skulle jag så bra som mig Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores Karlsson, Karlsson Yes, welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeper Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who like to think of ourselves as the who's hues of fantasy hockey pod zing. Sorry, that sounded better in my head. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky. With me, as usual, is a really special guest that isn't Brian, because when I say as usual, I mean for our 32 Beats Beat Writer series. And this week, I'm going to be joined by the Athletics' Harmon Dial to talk all about the Vancouver Canucks. I'm really excited to talk to Harmon. Normally, I've already recorded the interview when I record this intro, and I'm telling you, like, I know you're going to like this episode. It was a blast. You know what? This time, I said to do something a little different. I'm just going to make a prediction. I have a feeling it's going to be a good talk. I'm really excited to talk to Harmon about the Canucks. It's our second year in a row talking about Vancouver. And unfortunately, I guess the mood won't be as optimistic, maybe, as it was last year because this is a bit of a rough season so i'm looking forward to getting into all that before i cut to the interview of course let me mention we're presented by dauberhockey.com the number one fantasy hockey website in the world they're just coming out with articles all the time like multiple a day today i see they released an article about the 15 fearless forecasts revisited so i guess they looked at what they uh, predicted at the start of the year and how they did i always like to see that accountability also of course our recent ramblings discussing the recent ryan Nugent hopkins and wayne simmons signings so just you know dauber hockey always up to date with what's going on in the world of fantasy hockey but okay that's dauber hockey check it out and now without further ado let me cut over to uh, my interview with Harmon dial hope you like it okay everyone we've got a really fun beat writer interview for you today we are joined by the canucks reporter from the athletic nhl of course you know it's Harmon dial for the second year in a row welcome back to keeping carlson Harmon. thank you for having me back a second time yeah, it was so fun. I just listened to our interview recently. I'll be referencing it as we go. It was such a fun chat. It was, uh, I guess, happier times, though, because the, uh, the when we talked last summer, it was before going into the playoff bubble. But, you know, the Canucks had come off this really strong season. like, And then, actually, right after we finished our interview, they went into the bubble and had a nice playoff run, right? They beat uh, Minnesota and St. Louis before they got taken out by Vegas in Game 7 of the quarterfinals. Uh, then, I guess, in the actual off-seasons, maybe our expectations should have been dampened a bit. Like, they weren't able to keep any of like Markstrom or Toffoli or Chris Tanev they got Holtby and Nate Schmidt I don't know if those were such great replacements at uh but still, I definitely did not expect the Canucks to end the season in the basement of the North Division a point behind Ottawa though of course you know it wasn't a normal season the team had that scary COVID outbreak uh, Pedersen missed the second half with a wrist injury so before I start asking you about some specific players I just want to ask are you looking at this disappointing season as a sign that the team is like still a long ways away from being a legit contender and that 2019-20 run was a bit of a fluke or can we just kind of like write this year off due to all the craziness and expect the team to get back on track next year well I think there's definitely a middle ground where I think you know when you looked at the team that was on paper uh on opening night going into the season it was a lot different than the one we saw in the bubble as you referenced the number of key players that the team lost into Foley and Markstrom and Tanev and even uh going down the list uh and down the depth chart a player like Troy Stetcher so definitely I think right. when you looked at that and just the overall profile and makeup of the team. I was personally of the opinion that in 2019-20, the team had kind of, you know, played to it to the absolute peak of their potential. 
And as a result, I definitely expected some semblance of a step back. That said, I didn't expect it to be this precipitous. Um, I figured they'd be on the fringe of a playoff spot um, and be kind of in a situation where it's a 50-50. And obviously, they did take a step back, but uh, a lot more than I expected, as you mentioned, ending up in the basement of the North Division. And I think, as you mentioned, it is a combination of different factors, I think. Uh, you look at uh, Nate Schmidt coming in, and as a first-year uh, first-year Canuck, he wasn't able to make the impact that he had uh, made for Vegas. Uh, just the fit wasn't quite right from day one. I think a lot of people, including myself, when you looked at Tanev and Stetcher departing, there's a question of, okay, would you rather have Nate Schmidt or Tanev plus Stetcher? And at the time, I thought Nate Schmidt because he was – at the time from Vegas, high-end, top-pairing defenseman. And in retrospect, that uh, couldn't have been further from the truth, where Tanev had a renaissance season. Stetcher continued to be the solid number 4-5-D that we always knew he was. And so the Schmidt acquisition didn't really work out. Uh, And even just from the start of the season, a number of the key players, uh, starting at the top with with Pedersen in particular, got off to a really slow start in January. And this is a Canucks team that we've always known that the supporting cast um, leaves a lot to be desired. It's definitely their weak spot. And so they're disproportionately reliant on their top players. And so when your top players don't pull through, and I think that that's when that, that was the most unexpected part of the season was guys like Pedersen and Hughes taking a step back. Um, particularly on the, on the first unit power play, which went from in 2019-20 having the best goal differential in the league to um, this past season struggling not only in the second half when Pedersen was out, but even in the first half, they weren't clicking. Um, you know, when, when that kind of falls apart, the top end doesn't pull through. It kind of exposed uh, the soft underbelly of the team's supporting cast, which we already knew was kind of, uh, kind of weak. Right. Yeah, I get that. I guess, yeah, you're really expecting a guy like Elias Pettersson to help carry you through if your depth isn't so strong. And yeah, I wanted to ask you about this Pettersson slump because yeah, he started the year, he got a point in the season opener, then he was pointless in his next five games, two points in his first eight. He did then turn things on. Like he had two straight multi-point games against the Sens, and that started a run of 19 points in the final 18 games he played before he went on the shelf with that wrist injury. So I guess first off, I'll just ask, like, do you have any idea of like how Pedersen's doing? Like, are we expecting him to be 100% come training camp, assuming like he has a contract signed by then? Yeah, that's what his agent JP Barry uh, was saying on uh, on the Donnie and Dolly show. So um, definitely expect Pedersen to be back uh, 100%. Uh, coming off of that wrist injury, I think the, you know, when I look at Pedersen's season, it was just, I think, a blip in the radar when you look at the first eight games or so where he really struggled. As you mentioned, towards the last 17, 18 games or so, he was his usual dominant self. It was just the first eight games or so where, um, and this is where, you know, any slump that you, or or even on the contrary, in a hot streak that you went through, it was going to be magnified in the shortened season, especially for uh, right, at the, right at the start of the gate. So first eight games or so was really bewildering. And it looked like Pedersen was almost a shadow uh, of himself, not only in terms of the production, but just he wasn't creating chances. He wasn't really controlling the play. He was getting uh, shelled a lot defensively. And But after, I think by the, by the ninth or 10th game mark, 
he really started to take off and, and become, again, not only did the point production return, but he started producing chances like we've seen before. Uh, we saw dominant two-way results. So I'm not worried about him at all going into next season, but it definitely was. I mean, when, you talk of, when you're talking about a 26-game campaign for Pedersen, it's going to magnify the slow start that he had, even if it was seven or eight games or so. Yeah, I think in terms of fantasy, at least, he might be a decent sleeper going to next year just because people are going to look at the season point totals and look at like his average and say, oh, he was down from the previous year. But, you know, he was fine after that slump at the start that you're saying is probably nothing to read too much into. So uh, I did have a patron of ours, Julian, was suggesting that he's seen stories that the contract negotiations are looking rough. Do you know anything about this? Should we be concerned that we might not get Pedersen back even if he's healthy? I, I I don't think so. I, I haven't heard personally too much about negotiations going south or anything like that. I think actually for Pedersen, he's probably the easier contract to get done because I think it's going to be a lot easier to find common ground when you look at the potential comparables that are going to be out there. Um, Matt Barzell signed uh, three years, $21 million um, just this just this past offseason. And that, of course, was in the pandemic world where I think it's, you know, a lot of the contracts that are signed pre-pandemic, I, I don't think there's going to be a huge difference there. But um, the fact that, you know, there there are, there's definitely some feeling in the industry that um, the pandemic has changed the financial landscape and that changes how contract comparables might uh, get done. So having uh, a comp as recent and as applicable as Barzell for Pedersen, I think really helps as this, when you look at uh, Britain Point, he signed in a similar range. And of course, he's in a different scenario because there were a lot of other intangible uh, factors. Um, the fact that he's out in Tampa where there's no state tax that kind of play into things um, that would have, um, you know, incentivized him to take a below market uh, deal. But um, I think the fact of the matter is just with Pedersen, you're probably grappling with around a $500,000 window um, on a per year basis, if you're talking about a three year bridge deal, just because the parameters are relatively fixed. Again, I think it's going to be pretty easy to find common ground there. Uh, the one that's interesting for me is Quinn Hughes, just because that, you know, for him, when you look at ELC defenders that have produced at a comparable clip, they, they just aren't um, there, aside from Kale McCarr, who's also up for contract renewal. I think. You know, the the comps that have come out for Hughes that people have kind of referenced are you looked at um, Sergachev, McAvoy, Rensky, but uh, Hughes outproduced those guys right. pretty significantly on a point per game basis. And so it's a question of when you look at what McAvoy, Wierenski and Sergachev got, they all produced roughly in the half a point per game paced with their ELCs and um, made roughly five million a year for three years. On their bridge deals, so with Hughes, it's a question of, okay, how much of a premium um, does he deserve compared to those guys? And it's tough because there is no, I think, upper, there is no upper um, ceiling for what a player, uh, what a defenseman of that caliber should uh, should be making unless you're talking about um, a long-term deal. And that's where even uh, on the Hughes front, it sounds as if that's uh, the, you know, between the two, he's the one that is maybe more likely to be variable in terms of the term they investigate. So I think with Hughes, it's going to, going to be perhaps more of more of a challenge to find some of that common ground, especially because of the season that he had. Uh, he didn't have any issues racking up points, but his defensive play 
took a significant uh, step back compared to where it was in his rookie season. And I think there's definitely a question of, okay, how much does that affect his valuation as a player? Hmm, well, I guess maybe that could be like a silver lining to him not having as great of a season if Jim Benning could then maybe get a longer term, like cheaper deal or something from him. Like overall, yeah, I did notice that I read your article about uh, reevaluating your 2021 predictions and you were predicting that he was going to be a Norris candidate and then he didn't do that. Like, do you have any concern that he's not as good as you thought he was last summer? Well, I'm personally in the camp that I think he's going to bounce back. I think when you look at his season in particular, you know, obviously um moving away from you know not having Chris Tanev as a partner didn't help um I think just overall the team as a whole had a really rough start and when you look at the kind of player that Hughes is I think the fact that the team played more and more without the puck and 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 began starting to chase games I think that kind of sort of accentuated his weaknesses away from the puck rather than the season before where the team was doing a much better job of controlling play. Um, and there was more stability where I think that allowed Hughes to play a quieter game um, with more puck possession. And so I, I personally believe that he's going to bounce back, especially because uh, a lot of times with defensemen, we do see that their development is, isn't linear. Um, that said they're like, you definitely have to watch for it, right? Because you look at uh, the number of even start goal, goals against that Hughes was on, was on the ice for, I believe it's the highest of all NHL defensemen. And um, you, when you try and when you look at rookie Quinn Hughes versus sophomore Quinn Hughes, the point totals are the same, but in terms of two-way impact and ability to drive five and five results, you're talking about a completely different player where the rookie version of Quinn Hughes is someone who would realistically be in uh, the same tier as Adam Fox, as Kim McCarr, the guys that, I mean, Fox won the Norris. McCarr was right up there for, for contention. I mean, you'd be talking about Hughes as a top 10 defenseman in the NHL. Uh, but the sophomore version of Quinn Hughes um, was quite flawed defensively. And as a result, that's maybe more of, you know, if, if that's what you see moving forward, you're talking about a player closer to Keith Yandel or, or even a Morgan Riley, where, there are defensive and two A warts to his game, uh, and so you know that d- definitely would kind of change the long term outlook on what exactly Quinn Hughes is. It's not a question of is Quinn Hughes a top ranked defenseman because quite clearly he still is, regardless. But it'd be a matter of is Quinn Hughes a surefire number one elite defenseman on a cup contending team, or is he more of a one uh, B where he's going to play in a top pairing, but he's not going to be the even strength workhorse that you're going to have to more carefully deploy him um, to kind of maximize what you get out of him. So I think that's a question I personally, again, lean towards believing that the rookie version of Quinn Hughes is more indicative of what, of what we should expect moving forward. I think he's, he's going to bounce back in terms of the two way performance, uh, but it's going to be fascinating to see for sure. Yeah, well, I guess, like like we said, like, it's been kind of a weird season, like a lot of stuff happened that like, I would also want to maybe put my eggs in the rookie version being more what to expect. Also, like in when his rookie season, he had 
uh, Jacob Markstrom in net to sort of maybe help him out when he made a mistake or something. I guess when Braden Holpe was in net this year, he didn't do as well. I wanted to ask you about the goaltending. Like, like right when we talked last summer, that was before Thatcher Demko went on that amazing playoff run to help them go so far. And then this season, like, didn't start so well for Demko. He started the year with, like, five goals against and four goals against and seven goals against versus Edmonton, Calgary, and Montreal. And, uh, yeah, Holpe was struggling himself. Uh, but then Demko did turn into that playoff version of Demko soon after. We went on that run in March where he led in two or fewer goals in eight of nine games in a row. And he was, like, playing all the games. Like, Holpe was on the bench game in, game out. So uh, going into next season now, maybe potentially good news for Quinn Hughes could be that I'm assuming that Demko is now the sure starter. There's no more question of if he's going to have to split time. And even if Holpe doesn't get claimed by Seattle or anything, this is like Demko's net moving forward. Absolutely. And and he's going to be a huge part of um, the team's success next season. Because when you look at uh, the, even just the 2019-20 version of the Canucks and kind of their formula for winning games, their competitive advantage you know, one of the the main ones was what they were able to do in goal. Uh, and th- it was what they did in goal. It was their top six. It was the power play. And uh, so for, you know, those pillars to stand true moving into next season, you're going to need Demko to author a performance similar to what he managed last season, where, um, as you kind of mentioned, after a slow start, it seemed as if he was really able to to find his groove. And again, in March, he was single-handedly the reason that the, that the Canucks even got within shouting distance of a playoff spot before their COVID outbreak. Um, the team was getting outplayed on a night-to-night basis, and um, it just it didn't seem to phase Demko at all. He really seemed to um game gain confidence and you can see the trust that the team is starting to develop in him now moving into next season it's going going to be interesting too because um despite how well Demko's played through uh the bubble and obviously this season he is still relatively inexperienced as a starter and the one thing we know about goaltenders is how volatile the position is um, you don't have to look far to look to, you know, find many examples when you think of guys like Matt Murray, uh, that went, went on some of these Cinderella runs. And, um, we've seen obviously how he struggled in Pittsburgh and then went to Ottawa and then, um, just goaltenders on a year to year basis are so volatile and, all, and I'm not suggesting that I think Demko's is going to necessarily take a step back or anything. Um, but it's not a certainty that he's going to be, say, a top five or, or even a top 10 starter in the NHL next season. I think th- there's a strong probability in him. I definitely bet on him as being an above average starter next season. That's what it's going to need. Um, I definitely have confidence and faith in Ian Clark. Um, but it's just uh, goalies are, are, sometimes, um, are sometimes tough to project in. Um, I think that that's definitely going to be one of the biggest X factors is exactly how good is Demko going to be for the Canucks next season. But no doubt, zero question in my mind that he is the uh, uh, unquestionable starter, the the workhorse number one for this team. And Ian Clark, by the way, that's the goalie coach, right? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. And then do you think that Holby will come back? If you had to predict what's going to happen in the expansion draft, I know I heard a lot of people when they signed Holby, it was like specifically to hope that he gets taken by Seattle. Do you think that with the season he had, do you think that's still an option? I highly doubt it unless you're giving up uh, giving up uh, significant um, sweeteners to Seattle. And the reason I say that is 
hope he's now coming off two consecutive seasons as uh, a below 900 um, safe per- with a below 900 safe percentage. And I think when you look at some of the other options Seattle Seattle's going to have, and, it's, and the problem with um, Holpe isn't just the $4.3 million cap it he has. It's the fact that he's owed $5.7 million in hard cash going into next season because his contract was backloaded so that a greater proportion of his salary was um, set up uh, to be uh, paid in year two. So if you're the Kraken um, to be giving up uh, almost $6 million in, in, in salary for a backup goaltender, even even knowing all the intangibles that player like Hopi would bring to the table, I don't think it'd be particularly appealing for them. Uh, and especially because for Seattle, for, for them, cap space is going to be their number one asset. Like that's the biggest competitive advantage that they're going to have. I mean, when you look at how quickly Vegas became good and, and how they kind of climbed up the ranks, it's because, well, part of it is because um, a lot of the other GMs made mistakes and kind of hand gifted them a lot of uh, uh, high-end talent, but big reason for for Vegas is Vegas's success was also uh, the fact that they didn't have any bad contracts. And so they could go out and make these splashy acquisitions. And that that's what they did on the trade market. That's what they did in free agency. And so for the, if I'm the Kraken, I'm not touching that Holpe contract personally, unless the, unless the Canucks are willing to give up uh, a premium pick or, or other premium future assets. And um, for the Canucks, that should be a non-starter. I think, if you're looking for a viable exit route, and this is where it becomes a philosophical debate as to how the Canucks should approach this offseason, um, is whether they should uh, pursue the buyout, buyout route, because that would open up a decent amount, a decent chunk of um, cap space. The problem is it come with, uh, I believe, a roughly $1.8 or $1.9 million uh, cap penalty for the 2022-23 season. And the problem with that is the 2022-23 season is the year where the Canucks can more realistically make an all-in shot at uh, trying to contend for a uh, Stanley Cup. That's what, when they're going to have a bunch of their bad contracts come off the books. When, when you look at Erickson, when you look at Beagle, Roussel, uh, and the list just goes on and on. And so because of that, it's, you know, when you look at next season and the limited cap flexibility the team is going to have once Patterson and Hughes sign, you really have to ask yourself, is it worth buying out Holpe to where, yes, it's going to open up more space for you next season, but realistically, you're not going to have, even after these buyouts, uh, enough money to really overhaul the supporting cast and and credibly contend for a cup. And so maybe it's a better idea, I think, to preserve your shot in 2022-23. And so that's where um, the Canucks are going to have to ask themselves what year they really prioritize in making this potential buyout decision on Holpe. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe, especially after a season where you came last in the division, maybe you don't want to expect that you're going to be a cup contender the next year. So maybe just wait out this Holpe contract. Uh, I guess since we're on goalies, I might as well also ask you about Michael DiPietro. I guess there's not much of an update since when I talked to you about him last summer, he only played four games with Utica this past season. I am curious about him, though. I, I recently opened up a box of 2020-21 upper deck hockey cards and I pulled a DiPietro young gun. So I'm curious to know if I could like quit my job and retire because he's going to be a huge superstar in the league or if you think maybe 
maybe I'm going to have to stick with my day job. It'll be a while, if ever, that he's, you know, a serious uh, player in the league. Well, definitely. I think with, with uh, Di Pietro, the Cubs, definitely banking on him. I remember talking to uh, Jim Benning before the start of this season. And one of the things that he mentioned was when once Holpe's contract uh, expires, that uh, they'd expect that Di Pietro should be ready to take over backup duties uh, behind that Jodemko. I still think that would be the plan. Obviously, a lot of it w- will hinge on how he uh, performs going into next season. And, you know, having missed all that development time, there is a question of how that's going to affect his trajectory moving forward and whether that could delay his potential NHL timeline. But um, the Canucks still think quite highly of him. And, and that extends down to the goalie coach, Ian Clark, who um, would have, I mean, if there's one silver lining in the fact that DiPietro wasn't able to get game action, it's the fact that he spent a lot of time with Ian Clark this season and, and just generally being around the club. So um, with DiPietro, I still think um, I'm relative, relatively bullish on his upside. And, and this is where um, when you're trying to, I think, take the next step as the Canucks are, the one thing that you, the one thing the organization has to realize is it's not just Pedersen and Hughes that have their contracts coming up, but you look at Brock Besser next summer, his contract is up. Uh, Horvat and Miller are set for UFA in two years. And so the point here is your top players are going to become uh, a hell of a lot more expensive. And as a result, that means your supporting cast, you're going to have to be a lot more efficient and you're going going to have to mine surplus value contracts and, the easiest way to do that is to get players that you draft and develop, get them through the system and graduate them. And when you look at a player like Di Pietro, it would be highly beneficial if you could be in the NHL and um, be your backup at or uh, on his ELC or, or uh, at if not that, even at a relatively affordable rate. So with Di Pietro, I think it's going to be imperative that he kind of hit in addition to a lot of the other club's top prospects. Yeah, for sure. I'm definitely going to want to ask you about some of those prospects. So yeah, really excited to talk about more players with you. We'll be back with Harmon Dial in just a sec. All right, we're here with Harmon Dial still talking about the Canucks. So Harmon, you were talking about how Brock Besser's contract comes up in a year. He's definitely a positive from this past season. Uh, when I talked to you last summer about him, he had been coming off like kind of a rough end to the 2019-20 regular season. He had a quiet end also to the playoffs. Uh, he had hit a wall at some point. He got bumped to the third line. And when I asked you about him, you totally nailed it. You were like confidently saying that you think he's just a streaky player. You know, he got on a bit of a cold streak. And then, you know, when he got bumped to the third line, that wasn't a good fit for him. You still saw him as a legit top line forward. And yeah, you were definitely proven right in this past season. He came out strong. He had a two-goal game versus Edmonton to start things off. Wasn't slowed down even by like the COVID layoff or losing Pedersen in the second half. Like in the end, Besser finished with 23 goals and 49 points in 56 games. That's like a 30 four goal 72 point pace uh i guess if i was gonna nitpick one thing i see his shots were down like he only averaged two and a half shots per game when he had been at like three shots per game in the previous couple seasons uh he made up for that by having a career high shooting percentage so he still ended up uh scoring his goals so i'm curious now what's your take going into uh besser's 24 season on the guy like do you think that what he did this past season looked sustainable and he'll be able to you know keep that up moving forward or do you think that he's going to have to like shoot more to be able to maintain the production that he had? Yeah, I think definitely. I think his uh, conversion rate was a little uh, high, as you, as you mentioned. Shooting percentage crept quite a bit. And last time it was in kind of the high teens uh, was his rookie season. And of course, after his rookie season, 
there was uh, a decline in his uh, production as a sophomore. So that is one of those things where I think he is going to have to shoot a little bit more to offset uh, offset any potential regression in his uh, shooting efficiency. Um, but, you know, I'm not too worried about that. I think um, this season is definitely more indicative of the kind of player Besser is than what we saw last season. And really it was a narrative busting kind of year for him where um, I think when, you know, people looked at the declining production, particularly in the goal scoring column, a lot of people, especially looked at the kind of rosy opportunity that he had had next to Patterson and Miller, how those two guys were firing in all cylinders and kind of asked themselves, okay, is he to some extent riding the coattails of Patterson and Besser? And so it's not just the fact that he produced, it's that he did it for half the season without Elias Pedersen. And that kind of showed that he can create offense on his own um, yet again. And, you know, last season too was um, he had been snake bitten when, uh, when we talk about a shooting percentage, it was a lot of bad luck and a combination of factors is, um, you know, when he kind of wasn't, converting as much as you had, as we had talked about earlier, he was kind of bumped into the third line for moments and that wasn't a great fit. So I think this was just a great reset year for him. Confidence building. I think we're finally seeing him uh, fully confident in his, his shot again, where I think there was a moment after his uh, scary back injury where he was a little bit hesitant shooting. And um, so I think there's that component and he's, he's gone over the over the last um, two or three seasons, a long way in rounding out his two way game and um, refining his playmaking ability a little bit, and so um, very very bullish on Besser moving into next season, which is huge for him because he is due for a seven point five million dollar qualifying offer. Uh, and I think there were questions after last season, especially when we weren't sure if Toffoli was going to come back or not. Um, of is best with the kind of piece you dangle that, you know, if you bring the Foley back, do you potentially look to the market and um, again, try dangling him for say a right-handed top pairing defenseman. And um, that was one of those situations where at the time I completely disagreed because I felt you'd be selling low on Besser and that he was too important to relinquish. And I still feel the same way about him today. He's, uh, he's just gone a long way and, in uh, rebuilding and restoring his uh, internal value. Yeah, well, he definitely had a fantastic season, just like you predicted. So it seems like there shouldn't be a reason why he can't keep it up, especially if Pedersen is back and they can play together. I guess I am curious to know how you expect the top six will look next year. Like, just looking at the top six from this past season, uh, most of the other guys we talked about, like, you know, performed exactly as we expected. Like, JT Miller was fantastic once again, ended with a 71-point pace. Bo Horvat did what he always does, like, around a 60-point pace. But then, actually, when you listen back to our interview from last year, I wasted, I guess, your time. And the listeners' time, I was asking about the likes of like Jake Vertanen and Josh Levo, asking like which of them is going to be the one that cracks the top six. Clearly, the guy I should have been asking you about was 2019 40th overall pick Nils Hoglander, who right out of the gate landed a spot playing with Horvat and Pearson. He ended up putting up a very decent rookie season 27 points in 56 games. Uh, is it Hoglander or Hoglander? I realize I probably am saying that wrong. Hoglander. Hoaglander, right, yeah, that sounds more correct. Okay, yeah. Was Hoaglander's emergence as much of a surprise to you as he was to me? Absolutely. He was definitely a surprise to me. I think 
you know, I watched him a little bit in Sweden, uh, just nothing crazy, a few games on, on tape. And coming into this season, I figured he had an outside shot of cracking the team. And, and the main question that I had, had kind of had was, realistically, for him to make an impact and stick with the team, that he'd have to kind of stick in, you know, if he was going to play in the top six, it likely would have had to be in a matchup role on that Bo Horvat line. And I wasn't sure if his two-way game was advanced enough for him to kind of handle that kind of extra responsibility as a 20-year-old rookie. And um, he he was ready for that challenge. And uh, specifically, when you look at his production, I mean, 27 points uh, that he scored, uh, all but I believe two of them were at 5-on-5. Five five. And so he was one of the NHL's, um, I think he was top 50 or top 60 forwards in terms of 5-on-5 five five points. And um, the sheer amount of offense he was able to drive. And, um, you know, there definitely were, I think, learning moments for him defensively, as you'd expect for any 20-year-old rookie. But the impact that he was able to make in transition of helping out on zone exits, being able to carry the puck through the neutral zone, um, making plays at the offensive blue line, his value as a playmaker and how he's, he was able to find players in the slot, um, create cycle offense, uh, his value as an F1 puck retriever and how quickly he's able to hound pucks down and just the overall energy level there, um, the battle level, how well he was able to uh, acclimate himself to the North American ice surface and despite being a, a smaller player, um, you know, the, the almost power forward style he had where he's so good at protecting the puck, taking it to the net. I was really surprised how quickly all of that uh, clicked. I mean, when he was drafted, I was a huge fan of the pick. I mean, I, I immediately wrote um, an article about how, why I thought he'd be one of the steals of the draft. And he's definitely trended that way so far, being a, being a second round pick. Um, but there's no question that I did not expect him to make as profound an impact as he did uh, this soon. Yeah, now looking into next year, do we have like the top six pretty much set? Like, you know, Besser, Miller, uh, Pedersen, and then Horvat, Pearson, Hoaglander? Or like, should we expect things maybe be shaken up going into next year? I did see that you wrote an article uh, on The Athletic about should the Canucks consider JT Miller as potentially moving to be a third line center, which actually wouldn't be great for me because I acquired Miller recently in fantasy and I imagine that wouldn't be great for his offensive production. But I know that Vasily Colson is likely coming in this season. So if you had to predict, how do you see their top six or top nine uh, shaking out? Well, they definitely need to add, um, I think, at least a couple middle six, uh, middle six forwards. And, um, and this is where it becomes a question of, you know, can you find, for starters, the question of how the top six is going to look, a lot of it hinges on what happens, as you alluded to, at the third line center position. Because... I think the Canucks look at um, their potential options in free agency on the trade market, and they don't see a simple external solution for how they're going to find um, a competent third line centerman. And so I think internally after, you know, having watched JT Miller play um, down the middle during the second half of the season, that it gave them confidence in his potential ability to slide into that slot. And so, of course, if that happens, if you're slotting Miller at 3C, which I think is a possibility that they're definitely considering, then you're suddenly subtracting top six winger. And so that's where 
um, things become murky. I think if you're talking about a player like Pod Colson, you know, I think you can slot him on, say, a, a potential third line. But even still, I mean, let's say, let's say hypothetically the Canucks go forward and they operate with Miller as their third line center. Um, you still need someone like, let's say you, you're then bumping Hoaglander up to the top line with Patterson, with Patterson and Besser. Um, and of course you'd have Horvan Pearson. You're still looking for the top six winger winger. So, um, this is the club still needs at least two, um, two top nine forwards, irrespective of whether they play center or wing, preferably you can find someone who's versatile and can give you options and can play both. And uh, so that's where the Canucks are kind of at. It's, it's kind of tough to map out what the top six is going to look like until we know um, which players they kind of bring in to support their top nine. I see. Right. So I guess this is all because Brandon Sutter is now going to be a UFA. I'm, ex- I'm assuming from what you're saying that they're not planning on bringing him back. Well, they could bring him back if they do. It'd be, I think in a fourth line capacity, I think at this stage, it's clear that he is, uh, he's not a viable third line center. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so then, yeah, I guess I'll ask you more about Pod Colson since we were discussing him. So people must be excited. Like, the news came out on May 30th that uh, the 10th overall pick in 2019, Vasily Pod Colson, agreed to a three-year entry-level contract. He's going to be coming to North America next season, I'd assume. Uh, when I asked you about him last year, you mentioned we couldn't really read much into his 2019-20 numbers in the KHL since he had been seeing really low ice time. Like, as an 18-year-old, it's a really tough league to break into when you're that young. Uh, so this p- past season, he had a modest step forward, I see, 11 points in 35 games and he had 11 points in 16 playoff games with Scott St. Petersburg of the KHL. So do you have a sense of what the current vibe and like expectation is for Pod Colson now as a 20-year-old crossing the ocean? Like, Do we think that he's going to you know, crack the team out of camp? And like, what kind of expectations should we have? Yeah, well, there's no question that I think he, he's definitely going to crack the team out of camp. And you know, the confidence level I have in that is because of how mature and advanced the two-way game is uh he is extremely committed to the defensive parts of the game when you look at how hard he back checks uh his intelligence positionally on the forecheck uh the routes that he's able to the routes that he's able to take the puck battles that he wins how he's always staying uh, above the plane above the puck um he's willing to do anything uh defensively to help the team control possession he helps on zone exits he, he just never cheats for offense, uh, blocks shots, can kill penalties. And so he's the, he's the kind of plug-and-play type player who can immediately sort of hold his own in NHL minutes. The question just becomes how high is, is his um, you know, offensive ceiling in year one? And that's where I think uh, the waters are a little bit more murky, where it's tough to really tell because – um, he had another modest season with uh, Scott St. Petersburg, saw a modest bump in ice time and uh, a commensurate uptick in point production, but he didn't exactly light the wor- world on fire. And there's kind of split opinion on what exactly he's capable of doing offensively. I personally lean towards thinking that it's going to take him a little bit of time to really um, blossom in terms of the point totals. But um, I, I definitely think the team has him penciled in to their top nine, most likely on a, on a third line. And, and, uh, so from that perspective, I'm not sure if you can expect him to have the kind of, you know, point totals and immediate impact that Hoaglander did, but, um, I'd expect, uh, uh, a player who, you know, 
can can drive play really well at even strength, even if it doesn't necessarily show up on the stat sheet. Okay, well, Purple, that's good news for the Canucks since you're saying that they're going to need to bring in like some top nine talent. And okay, I, I want to make sure I don't miss out on anyone. I missed out on Hoaglander last year, so I'll cover my bases, ask you if there's some other new faces at forward that we should be expecting. Uh, so here's some names that jump out at me, and maybe you could just tell me if these are players you expect to be on, on the team next year. I see there's like a 2017 second round picks, uh, Cole Lind and Jonah Gadjevich both put up decent numbers in Utica of the AHL this past season and got a taste of the NHL. Uh, do you expect either of these guys, Lind or Gadjevich, to uh, be mainstays in the lineup in this coming season, or am I reaching at this point? Well, there's still a little bit more of a shot for Lind than there is for Gadjevich, but uh, I think they're both long shots. A uh, problem for each of them is skating and the ability to kind of um, keep up with their first step. And, and that's definitely something where, when you heard Jim Benning at his end of your presser, you talked about wanting to add speed to his uh, to his forward groups. And that's definitely not something that Lind and, and Gadjevich bring to the table. I think, you know, both of them, um, when Lind came over here, because I think he's, he's the more well-rounded player that um, people had kind of higher hopes and expectations for, he just never seemed to really stand out and wasn't able to create a lot offensively. And you kind of struggled to see, you wonder what is his identity at the NHL level? Um, because he doesn't have the disruptive ability of a grinder. He didn't create enough offense despite getting uh, ample uh, opportunity next to Bo Horvat. And um, there wasn't really any sign of him either being able to drive play or help out defensively. He doesn't really kill penalties. So he becomes, uh, I think, a tough player to fit into your lineup as uh, as it kind of does for Gadjevich, who's... Um, He's gotten that front skill, but again, I think the skating ability is just a, an obstacle that's going to be insurmountable. I see. Okay, so it sounds like you're saying we shouldn't expect too many new faces at the forward position unless they get them out of free agency. I know one player that we did see a bit from last year, and I'd imagine we're expecting to see a lot more of this year, is on defense in Jack Rathbone. He you know, finished that successful career at Harvard. And this past year, we didn't see too much of him, but he had eight games with Utica where he had nine points. Then he scored his first NHL goal along with two assists in eight games with the Canucks. And you were talking about how the D struggled a bit this year, like Quinn Hughes wasn't as good defensively and actually when we talked last year your big concern going into this year was the defense so should we expect Rathbone now to like pod Colson like be almost a sure thing to make the team and do you think he could have a significant impact at least defensively if not offensively yeah well I don't think Rathbone's quite um you know like pod Colson is a sure thing Rathbone I still I I still think is going to have to earn his uh his spot in uh in training camp um, definitely was very uh, excited with what I saw from him um, with his eight game cameo, just the overall uh, smoothness of his game. We know he could skate. We knew he could, create, he could, you know, walk the line, make an offensive impact. But I think there was um, a sturdiness to his defensive game that uh, uh, was definitely encouraging to see. He didn't make many mistakes with the puck. His puck management was really good. Um, there were small defensive details that you could tell um, he needed some work on in terms of how to support puck battles and um, just working on in-zone defense as a whole. But um, he showed well in terms of his ability to leverage his gaining ability to close tight gaps in the neutral zone to force dump-ins. And he, uh, 
you know, he seemed to have grown a lot compared to when I had seen him initially at training camp where you watched him and you said, wow, he's got a lot of raw talent, but there are, um, you know, he's raw, right? There are some, um, some parts of his game that need refinement, that need marination. And uh, by the end of the season, when we saw him during his cameo, I think he had ironed out a lot of those parts of his game where, for instance, understanding the risk to reward of when to pinch versus when to stay at home. Um, I think, you know, through his cameo, he was a lot more calculated and, you know, didn't put himself out of position by pinching in the wrong situations, uh, which I think is a big thing for him, uh, something that he'd make mistakes on in the past. So um, for him to limit his mistakes, uh, I think was crucial and is going to be a big part of um, whether he makes the team or not going into next season, but definitely a strong year for him. Um, you're hoping he can make an impact on your bottom pair. Yeah, well, I guess something has to happen. Like, do do we have a good reason for optimism that this defense can improve a bit? Like for the team overall, I mean, like you suggested that you think Quinn Hughes can be a little bit better, but you know they let in the sixth most goals in 2020-21. Uh, I guess that we're still looking at like Tyler Myers and Nate Schmidt, you know, uh, being the main minute eaters outside of Hughes. Uh, yeah, I'm curious. Like, do you think that aside from just you know, Thatcher Demko standing on his head. Do you think that this team can improve their goals against numbers this year? Yeah. Well, I think part of it too is going to be um, the forward group, right? Where I think a lot of the challenges defensively, of course, the major source of those concerns are with the personnel in the back end, with the number of players that can't defend particularly well on their own end. But I think a lot of those two way concerns also extend to the forward group where I don't think you have a lot of players that understand, for instance, F3, F3 responsibilities when there are rotations, right? Because centers are most often kind of playing in that uh, playing in that role um, where they're taking on the F3 defensive responsibilities. But just because of the chaotic nature of the game, wingers do end up um, sort of temporarily taking on uh, some of the responsibilities that a centerman would, uh, would take um, when the play breaks down or when there are rotations. And so I think even just on the wings, there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of um, the, the, in terms of uh, the caliber of two-way play. So that's where I think um, depending on, you know, the Canucks are going to, are going to definitely bring in some external help um, within their top line. Hopefully those are guys that play a sound two-way game on the back end. Um, that's where it becomes a little bit tougher because I think you have to count on internal improvement as uh, the biggest source of improvement uh, because Canucks are going to be limited in terms of how much flexibility they have to really upgrade the rest of the roster. Um, You look at, you know, in all likelihood, your top priority in terms of improving a roster, it's probably up front first before you turn your attention to the back end simply because you have a couple of players in Edler and Hamannick that you can re-sign um, and especially in Edler's case, hopefully relatively inexpensively. So if you've allocated most of your remaining capital to the forward group, I don't know that you're going to be able to, for instance, acquire the stud right-handed defenseman that this team ideally needs in the long run, or I don't think you're really going to be able to find a second pairing um, successor to Alex Edler this offseason unless you get creative. So for that reason, you're kind of going to be tinkering on the edges hoping to kind of find an undervalued commodity. And um, again, I think 
if the team's going to improve defensively or, or more specifically on the back end, it's going to have to be banking on Quinn Hughes to bounce back. It's going to be banking on Nate Schmidt to bounce back. It's going to be hoping that Jack Rathbone can, um, can, can take a meaningful step forward and make an impact as a rookie and hoping that that's enough to have a, have a competent blue line that can uh, at least hold its own. Yeah, I mean, those are all three reasonable things to try to expect, I think. Yeah, I liked how you wrote in one of your articles that you think the Canucks need Alex Edler to be like their Jason Spezza and take a nice discount deal for them. Actually, I want to give you also kudos. Uh, speaking of the D, uh, at the end of last year's interview, I asked you, like, for which player do you think will be, like, a positive surprise, like, do a little better than people were expecting? And you mentioned that Tyler Myers has some room for growth offensively. He had some bad luck in his underlying numbers in 2019-20, and you were correct. He had the same 21 points, but in 55 games instead of 68. So he was better offensively. If you had to pick right now, maybe this is, like, a silly question. doesn't even matter. But, like, who do you think is going to come second in D scoring for the Canucks after? Uh, Quinn Hughes really good question um, I think a lot of it hinges on who ends up playing second power play um, I'd probably bank on Myers again to be honest um, I think he is you know as the season, season kind of went on a lot of it again hinges on whether Rathbone gets PP2 responsibilities but um, you know between Myers and Schmidt Myers I think is more likely to get a little bit more power play time and uh, he'll continue to munch a uh, ton of uh, even strength minutes too. So uh, I'd probably lean towards Myers there. Okay. And then I guess just to finish up uh, a couple like general things, like as far as the entry draft coming up, the Canucks have the ninth overall pick. Do you have any like wish list or like do you have a specific player that you're hoping will fall to them? Or what are you hoping they do there? Well, I'm hoping it's a four that falls. Um, right. I think, um, you know, I don't think the Canucks are... Like, I think they're in an advantageous spot generally where when you look at the tier, uh, when you look at the tiers in this kind of draft for the Canucks, it should be a relatively straightforward decision of just picking whichever one of the players in the top tier falls, whether that is a forward or defenseman. So I, I almost think that the Canucks are in a situation where they aren't going to have to, like, they shouldn't overthink this pick. It should be relatively easy. Um, there isn't, I think, going to be too much of a, you know, I don't think there's going to be a huge dilemma where you have three or four players that you're unsure on. It's um, it's going to be just seeing who's left um, after the first eight picks are made. That said, if you're kind of asking yourself, you know, hoping which players fall, I think Kent Johnson um, to me is one of the players where, you know, the more I talk to, especially the scouts that I trust in the industry that work for some of these NHL teams, um, he seems to be a swing for the fences kind of player. Um, more likely, I think, to project as a winger than he is a center, though he does potentially offer that versatility, but just extremely creative with the puck, um, excellent hands. Uh, you know, some people have concerns about um, the fact that he, you know, obviously isn't the strongest player and he, he, and he isn't the quickest one either, but um, I think he's just too skilled and too smart n- not to have a good shot at becoming a um, a valuable top six forward. And, and the ceiling there is just extremely high. When you look at the, the level of offensive skill that he has, I really like him um, in terms of the other forwards. I mean, uh, there's also uh, Mason McTavish kind of a uh, scrappy player there who, again, same sort of thing, probably more likely to be a winger than he is a centerman, but 
Um, also believe that he he has top six upside. Um, and then as it kind of pertains to some of the defensemen in the class, um, you know, you're probably talking about that second tier after Owen Power where um, you ask yourself, okay, which defenseman is going to be left out of Clark, uh, out of Luke Hughes, Simone Edvinson. I think out of those three, Edvinson's probably the one that you're hoping um, the Canucks don't walk away with. I think, you know, if, if he ends up being there at nine and, and that's just um, the only player that's left out of that top tier, I think he's a reasonable, justifiable pick at ninth, but I definitely rate uh, Hughes and, um, and Clark, especially higher than, uh, than those guys. I mean, Brent Clark is very interesting in particular. He's a, a very polarizing player. I mean, I've talked to some scouts who um, work for NHL teams, you know, one had him had Clark ahead of own power as the best defenseman in this class. Uh, Clark, a right shot guy, um, a little bit uh, of a strange skinning stride. And there are questions about, um, you know, if he, like he has to hit as a power play one guy to really maximize his value in that potential pick slot, but the ceiling could be really high, high there. And, and just the overall intelligence that he has in, in both offensively and defensively, I think um, is really encouraging there. Um, so I think those are some of the names to kind of keep in mind as, uh, as the draft comes up. Okay. Well, that was a really fun run through. I just know that I'm going to be earmarking whoever the Canucks pick, because they've had so much success with their early draft picks lately, like Hoaglander and Pod Colson most recently, and then Quinn Hughes, Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser back in 2015. So they, they seem to do well with their picks, even if it's not, you know, in the top five here, it's going to be ninth, like we said. Uh, and I guess also quickly, uh, so you said that for the Seattle expansion, you don't expect Holtby to be the one that goes unless the Canucks put in a sweetener for Seattle. So who do you think is the player that they're going to likely lose? Yeah, maybe uh, maybe a player like uh, Coland. Um, if Seattle banks on his uh, HL scoring profile and thinks that he could kind of take the next step with a bigger opportunity, um, maybe Joni Gadjevich. Although I think um, you know personally, I would rate him lower than Lind in terms of his in terms of the probability of him cracking uh, an NHL lineup at some point. Uh, maybe a guy like Zach McEwen, who in the right uh, in the right role could be a fourth line energy. Uh, role uh, player and um, you know I think those are kind of some of the top candidates that uh, that come to mind I don't think the Canucks are really in a position where they should they're going to be losing sleep over who they uh, may potentially have to expose okay well that's good yeah so it's not going to be a player who was a significant part of the lineup this year it sounds like okay cool so yeah the, thanks so much again for this great interview the time has flown by uh, you are really fun to talk to about the Canucks. You know so much about them. Uh, I guess to finish off, just like uh, last year, I'd love for you to give your thoughts on, uh, like, if you could pick one Canuck that you think will be the biggest, like, positive surprise next season, like some of the people people aren't expecting as much from as what they're going to end up giving them. And then maybe on the flip side, a player who you expect to be a bit of a disappointment next year, maybe people are too high on going into next year. Yeah, I think um, in terms of positive surprises, I think you'll, you know, not that these guys are necessarily undervalued, but I think with Pedersen and Hughes specifically, you'll probably see them bounce back in a pretty strong way moving into next season, especially on the power play. I think with Hughes even, I think you're going to see him clean up a lot of his puck management warts, um, his defensive struggles. I think I think you're, you're going to see something that uh, bears a closer resemblance to the rookie version of Quinn Hughes next season. 
Um, and if the overall team environment does improve, I wouldn't be surprised if Nate Schmidt bounces back and kind of positively surprises as well. Um, on the flip side, in terms of who might um, disappoint, I don't think there's an obvious candidate, if I'm being perfectly honest. I think um, if you're asking about, you know, not that I think he'll disappoint, but someone who I think you're going to have to be very careful with in terms of expectations are uh, is Vasily Podkolzin. Um, again, I am bullish on his long-term view and think that he definitely has top six upside um, if things fall into place correctly long-term, but I'm not sure how much offense you can realistically expect from him out of the gate. And I, I just think Canucks fans have kind of been spo- spoiled. I think they kind of look at... Um, you know, might look at a guy like Hoaglander, the incident impact that he had, uh, might look at, you know, incident impact that Hughes, Pedersen, Besser all had as rookies. And, um, and I think Vancouver's just been kind of in that sense, really, really fortunate with how quickly first years have found their groove. And I think, I wonder if that might set expectations a little bit too unfairly for pod goals. And so I like him as a player, but, just wonder if the bar might be a little bit high after what we just saw from from Hoaglander. Right, yeah, people might be going into their fantasy drafts thinking they've got to steal here the next Hoaglander, but it might not be as easy. And, and that's also fair that it's difficult to come up with a player to peg as like likely to be a disappointment. The team did come last in the division, like we've discussed, so a lot of the players hopefully will be improving and not getting worse. Uh, so yeah, like I said, Harmon, it was a blast talking to you. Uh, obviously, people should be following your work at The Athletic, following you on Twitter at HarmonDial2. Uh, is there anything else you want to tell people to check out? No, that's uh, that's about it. You nailed it. Thanks for having me. Okay, yeah, it was great. I'll link you know to your Twitter and to The Athletic in the show notes. And yeah, looking forward to uh, talking to you again about the Canucks in a year from now, hopefully with uh, better results. Absolutely. Thank you so much again to Harmon Dial for coming on for the second year in a row to talk about the Vancouver Canucks. That was a really fun discussion. Uh, hopefully when we do part three of the Harmon Dial trilogy, we'll be talking about a more successful season next summer. Uh, can't get much worse, right? So, okay. Thanks everyone so much also for listening to this episode. We really appreciate you sticking with us during the summer series. You're the true diehard Keeping Carlson fans. We really appreciate it. And if I don't know who you are, uh, let me know. Tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. Say, hey, I'm one of your listeners. We'll for sure write back and say thank you oh so very much. And if you want to say hi in an even more uh, personal and sustainable way, uh, you could always become a patron of Keeping Carlson where we have our summer promotion going for only a buck a month. You get access to our patron-only Discord where we're having some fun uh, ranking players every single day is the current activity that we're working on. And today we just ranked Alex Debrinkit as the 21st uh, player for fantasy next season, at least according to the couple rules. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's a big jump from where he was ranked the year before. And why not? Debrinket had an amazing year this year, paced for 50 goals. But anyways, this is the podcast about the Canucks. And I hate to tell you, uh, no Canucks have been ranked so far. So we'll have to wait for the first Canuck to go. I guess it'll probably be Pedersen, but maybe there's a little bit of concern after all the injuries. Okay. So anyways, what am I talking about? Oh yeah, patron. So keep it carlson.com slash patron if you're interested in that. I got to get out of here. So thanks again. Hope you like the show. Let's cue that outro music. I'll go ahead and read you the credits. This episode was presented by Dauber Hockey, supported by our patrons. The outro music is by the great Pat Roach, and logo art was by BrandonWeeb.com. And my research was mainly done using NBC Sports Edge, like Frozen Tools, of course, Cap Friendly, Evolving Hockey, The Athletic. 
course, mainly, of course, the research was done by Harmon Dial and all of his great work at The Athletics. So definitely make sure to uh, follow all of his uh, great work there if you haven't been doing so already. Uh, so, okay, I've got another interview scheduled. Next up, I'm going to be talking to Jesse Marshall about the Pittsburgh Penguins. I think that's going to be a really fun show. So just make sure you're subscribed to Keeping Carlson and you should get that episode uh, dropped into your feed sometime this weekend. And until then, I guess all you got to do is remember that fantasy hockey is for everyone.